This one I just wanted to open up completely to you guys, the Sync Academy members that might have some questions about sync licensing, about music libraries, about business stuff. Um, if you guys did not see, I released this morning a video on my channel that we will be starting our next Sync 60 challenge this coming uh, Monday. So lots of work and lots of preparation ready for that. And I hope if you guys have um, participated with us before, you will just this participate again. But if you have this not, I just wanted to open up. Hold on, I gotta get guys, my the Sync Academy members muting. That might have. I already knew there would be a problem. We're good now. Small problems. <laughs> we're good. Um, if you have not participated with us for Sync 60, then I do do encourage you to. Uh, jump in with us on this one because this is basically I think one of the most productive times of being a Sync Academy member. This is when you can really set yourself that realistic and achievable goal uh, for 60 days in front of you and be held accountable through our platform here, through our prog progress chart that we put on the um, Sync Academy platform to ensure that you're going to get that stuff done because we all know how easy it is to get lazy, to kind of you know, say you want to do something and then not do it, get distracted, life gets in the way, family gets in the way, work certainly gets in the way. So with Sync 60, hopefully we can give you some of the tools and resources and most importantly, the accountability through our community to make your goal a top priority for you to ensure you get it done. So a lot of members participate with us and they find that actually the goals they set for themselves were actually way too lofty, way too ambitious. And they realized as the, as the 60 days goes on, they had to really get more realistic and get something that's much more uh, achievable for them. And that's not a failure. That's actually a success because that means you're now more aware of yourself. You have a lot more knowledge about what you can actually do with your skills and with your schedule and your obligations. And if you're just dreaming, thinking you can get ahead of yourself, you'll never succeed in this business. You really need to come back down to earth and realize like, okay, maybe I can only get three tracks done in the next 60 days. And there's no shame in that. There's nothing wrong with that. If that's where you are, just accept that that's where you are. And maybe Sync 60 will allow you to discover that for yourself. Of course, for the next Sync 60 challenge, maybe you want to up that to five or six tracks. And it's a progress, right? And every time you do this, you can get a little bit better. And of course, with everything, just like when you first learned to ride a bike, the first time it's wobbly, the first time it's really uncertain and you're really scared to do it. But the more and more you do it, you know, the quicker you get at it, the more that you have this kind of built-in knowledge about how to you know, achieve your goals and how to succeed. And now the most important thing is you have a, you're building a history of not letting yourself down, of actually saying, I'm gonna get something done and you actually get the thing done. That's actually the most important thing you're gonna get out of this, that, that, building, that building of your confidence, right? And having sort of a, a culture within yourself and a history within yourself of knowing that you can set your, your mind to something and you can achieve that thing. Because so many of us do that thing where we say we're gonna get something done, forget it, uh, fail on it, just flake out on it, get distracted. And then what that does to us is anytime in the future we wanna get something done, we kind of start to go, well, I don't know, you're not really the type of person that follows through on your goals. You're not really the type of person that can execute. And that's a really bad self-defeating you know, uh, voice in your head, basically, that can sabotage you. And it's basically a form of self-sabotage. So we want to get away from that pattern. And we want to start putting a more productive and healthy pattern in front of us, uh, which is about getting things done and holding ourselves accountable for those uh, goals that we set for ourselves. So with that being said, welcome, Mike and Trevor. Let's check in with you guys, see how you guys are doing today. Uh, Trevor, how want you start? Let us know what's going on in your world right now. Uh, not much. Uh, kids wake me up super early, so I usually go on a jog really early. So I'm, I've been awake for a while. Um, I'm just ready to answer some questions. I'm really curious about, I don't get to answer a lot of questions like directly. So this would be kind of cool. I usually like get some here and there, but it's <clears throat> be kind of fun. Awesome, man. I'm excited too. How about you, Mike? How you doing? Uh, good, good, good. Yeah. I'm pretty excited to, uh, um, you know, get some feedback, answer some questions uh, for some people. And, um, 
yeah, I don't know. I've been, uh, been surprisingly, I don't, I don't want to say surprisingly, but like excitingly very busy uh, for the past like couple of weeks. So, which is kind of good since um, for the most part, it's been a little bit slow uh, during this pandemic. So it seems like things are starting to get back to normal and like start to pick up again. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so, so those of you that are watching right now, I know we got about like 20 or so of you guys that are watching. Uh, make sure you start putting your chats in the box um, so that we can start getting to them. And it looks like, Michael, you are the first one up. So we're going to go ahead and start with yours. So how this is going to work is I will read out your guys' questions. Um, if it's something that we've covered many, many times before, we might skip over your question. I might just point you guys towards some tutorials or the FAQ section within Sync Academy. Um, I don't want us to have to repeat multiple things, you know, that we've talked about many times or that we have other resources already pointing you towards. Um, and and then if I feel that maybe one or the other of these guys would be better suited to answer them, I will point it in the direction. But if you guys want to directly ask them, just say, hey, this is a question for Trevor. This is a question for Mike. And so we want to make sure that you can get the question right to them if you'd like to do that as well. Okay. Or if it's for me, just say it's for me. It doesn't matter. So Michael's question. It uh, looks like this is for Trevor. Uh, I've been hearing more and more references in top 40 songs um to 70s funk disco and 80s synth pop do you think these trends will translate to what libraries are looking for um <clears throat> so top, okay so top 40 songs with those influences yeah um i i think we're in this weird stage now where like everything goes um and so so the short answer is yes the long answer is actually like while yes that's popular i don't think those things will die i think we're gonna have lots of different genres that are like some like we're at the same time we're gonna have things with 90s influence like a perfect example is around the same time we've had a lot of like when um what's his name bruno mars had that uh that 90s remake sounding song uh gold magic or magic or something like that um it was super 90s but at the same time 80s 80s synth sounding stuff was also popular and right now like 70s funk sounds are kind of getting in getting into the mix and so i think that like it's, it's all just kind of going to happen constantly and just pay attention to what's going on like today. But I don't think there's a lot of in and outs apart from like heavy fad stuff, like, like eighties synth wave, um, had a big explosion when, what was it? Um, <clears throat> what was it called? Uh, uh, stranger things, really stranger things. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Stranger things. And then that drive movie, both of those had, kind of like kind of brought those into the forefront, but then they've really died down now. Nobody really wants to listen to it too much anymore. That kind of stuff will always happen. But like the hybrid top 40 stuff is just going to kind of have its constant pick of just random stuff. So I don't, I don't think you're going to really, I think a lot of it is super evergreen nowadays. That isn't, that didn't used to be before. Like we're not going to have, like when you think of seventies, there's really only one thing you think of, but now not, not so much. So. Yeah, uh, just to add on to that uh, really quick too. Um, a lot of times when you see like a big trend uh, that happens, like when Stranger Things came out. So um, usually what happens is with all the libraries that are out there and all the composers working for those libraries, everybody starts writing that music, and then the supply for that basically gets filled within like a week or so. So for instance, like when this pandemic hit, you know everyone was looking for um, you know somber piano like melody kind of stuff, right? For um, all the PSAs and stuff like that. And um, I remember there was like a lot of searches going on for the first week, but then everybody already filled that su uh, supply up within a week. So just kind of watch out for those, um, those really like, uh, what do you call it? Those like, like big trends that happen in and out and try to find those uh, genres that, you know, are kind of, that can be more timeless. Now those trends can always come back and everything like that. But like a lot of times when those happen, yeah, the supply just gets filled uh, pretty quick. 
Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, I would just agree with both of these guys that like everything's cyclical in the music business. It's like whatever's hot, you know, right now is usually a throwback to what was hot 20, 30, 40 years ago. And it's just always changing. And there's just always a new throwback. I don't know if I can ever say like it's always a, you know, every 30 years that sound comes back because it seems like it's a little bit un more unpredictable than that. But you definitely hear now that genres are merging and we're kind of pulling back from the old and bringing it into the new. So that's just always going to happen. I think just getting used to that and getting prepared for that is just a way to go forward with it. Um, next up, we have one from Chase. Um, and maybe Trevor or Mike, you guys can go for this one. Uh, given the choice to opt in for blanket licenses, this is with a music library, can that track still be sold directly earning a sync fee? Or are sync fees only applicable for tracks that are chosen to opt out of blanket licenses? In other words, if your tracks are accepted into a library under this blanket license agreement, is there any chance that that track could get a sync fee for any opportunity? Trevor, why don't you start with that one? Yeah, no, for sure. So blanket licenses are usually um, <clears throat> are for certain, like either certain shows or certain net networks, stuff like that. So. So, for example, the track might get thrown into a blanket for, I don't know, ESPN network. So, in that sense, there won't be any sync fees. But that track also might still get used in some like big movie or something. And there's a sync fee in that scenario. So, just because it's in one blanket one place doesn't mean it's not going to get like a sync fee in another place. The blankets are usually just client specific. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's yeah. Cool, Mike. Anything to add on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, really, at the end of the day, like when you, you know, it depends on the contracts, but when you have that opt-in clause, they're basically giving you the option to, which is kind of cool that a library would give you a separate option and be like, hey, listen, we do a lot of uh, blanket deals. Um, would you like to include your track in it or not? You know, so most, um, at least um, my experience, most libraries that I've dealt with don't really give that option, you know, and then you just find out like later that it was part of a blanket deal that, you know, and which is fine, you know, you still get your royalties and everything like that, but, uh, you know. Yeah, and and a cool thing about blanket stuff too is is um in my experience like I've had tracks where they'll get thrown into a blanket and yeah I don't see any upfront money but man they use it like crazy you know it'll get thrown into like every episode of a show every like for the whole season and then like a year later my royalties are just like poof. you know they just skyrocket because in those scenarios they're kind of looking at it as like okay we'll use it a ton but we're not going to pay like 20 sync fees for one season so instead we'll do a blanket which is pretty cool for writers because they get they, their writers you know just go out to the writers and so in, in a lot of senses when it comes to certain clients whether it's you know sports or reality or whatever like blankets are really good for royalties yeah and also um if you think of like streaming services like netflix uh when i was an editor over at netflix that was um all their rollover uh, trailers, you know, over their titles on their app and everything like that, that was all using blanket um, blanket deals. So, um, and that makes it easier for the editors too, because we can just pick whatever we want uh, and not have to worry about, there's no negotiation on sync fees and stuff like that. And then, you know, however that translates to the library and then to the composer is whatever is specific to whatever their deal is. Cool, awesome. Um, let me take this next one. So this is from Josian. The question is, Say I'm, um, I'm um, uh, the genre I'm specializing in with a library is rock. How would the transition go to other genres? Would libraries ask me to do an EDM or is it something that would need to come first for me to branch out? So I can tell you in my experience, it probably happens in all different types of ways. In my experience, uh, Josian, when I went into a library and I was usually either just the rock guy or maybe the EDM guy, a lot of times what would happen is the library would say, hey, Jesse, we know that you do rock, but we're also looking for something a little bit more like this can you give that a shot? And usually they would come out to me and say, you know, we want you to kind of like 
branch out and try something else here and see if it works for you. Um, you can also always offer your secondary or third um, um, genre specialties to the library if you feel that they might actually be interested in getting that kind of music placed. And of course, you need to be realistic and honest with yourself. If you just started learning how to produce hip hop and it's not really there yet, probably just because you're excited that you're learning this new genre, it's probably not the time to start introducing that to your library yet, right? So if you feel very confident that your secondary genre is just as strong as your primary one, which is rock, it's not a bad idea to just give them a sample and say, just so you guys know, I'm not just the rock guy, I also do this and let them decide if it's something they want to bring you on board for. But it can be both. It can be the library tells you this is what we're looking for. We have an opportunity. Are you even able to do something like this? And you actually might find some libraries you work with will ask you to do genres you've never worked in, you never even thought about working in. But because you're excited or you're interested in maybe getting that sync fee, you're like, you know what? I've never done this before, but I'm going to give it a shot. So always be open for those kind of things. It doesn't mean you're going to get it. It doesn't mean you're going to be great at it in the beginning. But you might find that just being kind of pushed into these new genres might be a really cool learning exercise for you to expand your boundaries. So I'd say it kind of comes in all different ways for you to kind of branch out. But for sure, for everybody watching, if you're brand new to a library or brand new to sync licensing, go to that one genre though. Stick with one genre. Do not come to them saying, I can do five, I can do 10, I can do anything. I'm a genreless producer. I know it sounds very attractive, but it's really not. You really need to get down to the niche one thing that you do really well, okay? Let's move on to the next one here. Uh, Nigel had a question, and this is for Trevor. Trevor, this is kind of more about like um, working with your library through the syndicate. So Nigel, why don't you go ahead and email Trevor directly? Trevor, yeah, what's your I responded. Okay, yeah, I already cool. responded to him. Yeah, let's make sure if it's, uh, if it's syndicate stuff, guys, let's keep that out of this chat because we need to make sure that stuff stays within the syndicate or directly between the library, whoever you guys are working with. But uh, thanks for bringing it up, Nigel, but we'll get that taken care of for you. Um, yeah. Let's see. Mike, this one's for you. Uh, this is from Manzolo108. Mike, I would love to hear more about or perhaps a video tutorial for the new video game formats and VR specifically and how to create music for those cutting-edge formats. Now, we did release those tutorials about, uh, and it's Robert Gill. Thanks for letting us know, man. Uh, we did talk about video game formats. So is there anything more in particular? I don't know, uh, Robert, if there's something in particular. I don't know if you watched... Um, before we answer that, Robert, make sure you let us know if you actually watched our tutorials that we did release about the video game formats, because that's exactly what we did release. So I want to make sure that you're not asking a question that we've already covered in there. Um, but maybe, Mike, if you can just talk a little bit about formats and how it's a little bit different with video game stuff as opposed to what we've been usually doing for TV film stuff. Yeah, so just overall, um, music for video games and VR projects and stuff like that, the thing you have to just remember is that the, the medium is just not linear. You know, so um, and it's reactive to whatever the user or player is doing, you know, so when you're watching a TV show or a film, everything is set up on a linear timeline. You know, the story is being told to you by the director or whoever the storytellers are, and everything is just very meticulously placed in a linear fashion. So when it comes to game music, you know, um, yeah, it's since it's not linear, you kind of have to cater your creation and your assets to that. So the, the tutorials kind of go through that. I will add um that what's coming is with the release of unreal 5 which is a brand new um game engine that's kind of changing the game right now because uh it's processing power and the like the speed at which it's rendering and what it's rendering at real time is opening up um not only like new doors for what you can do graphically but musically as well so um there's a lot of talks right now too where taking this nonlinear format is going further in the sense of figuring out how to um, maybe tailor a score to the player 
um, and the play style, you know, so in the sense of kind of using a little bit of machine learning, a little bit of AI, uh, because the new engine can kind of support that. So um, that's something to watch for. And it's just all like pretty much open. It's just all about like, um, what do you call it? Um, you know, like I said, it's nonlinear, so it just it just kind of fits around the story uh, according to how the player plays. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, and if you guys are not familiar with this stuff and you want further training, that's why we released all those tutorials. Um, it's in Sync Academy. Just look up video games and you'll see all, I think you did four, three or four? Three. It was a three-part Three-part, yeah, and we're going to do some more of those uh, in the future yep. too. So lots of great, great, great stuff to dive into there. Uh, next up, this is from James Hoare. I've been looking at the um, plugins and the plugin palettes that you use in your tutorials, and I'm not in a position to buy them at the moment. Are the Logic and Reason Factory ones okay to use for now? I can tell you for sure logic ones yes because i have my entire producing mixing and mastering series that's in sync academy in those tutorials where i have i think 20 different tutorials and i show you guys from having nothing in my template in my logic session to having a completed fully bounced out track with stems and alt mixes and everything and other than i think i plugged in maybe my guitar and i sang a little bit on it other than those two instruments everything else was straight up from uh, logic and the stuff that's built in with logic 10. so i don't know uh trevor or mike if you guys can maybe talk about uh reason what's what's going on with the reason but i can for sure stand behind logic high high quality stuff coming there i mean i haven't used reason in over 15 years so um i mean at that time you know and the rules were a lot different especially with copyright and stuff like that i mean i know i know somebody that um actually landed a commercial just by bouncing out the reason demo song um, oh my so, goodness <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure you heard that story trevor <laughs> no i haven't but that's crazy that's, so i, I remember mean, that <laughs> 15 years ago 20 years ago whatever when it came out someone got away with it but um but yeah no as far as i think you know so the cool thing that i know about reason is they do have um actual producers um uh, like curated uh producers kind of make sample packs for them or maybe they grab them somehow much in the same way that i guess it splice does or whatever so um i know the sounds there are really high quality but it all depends on the kind of music you do um like trailer stuff, you can probably do it just with the stock sounds in, in either one, but it will take you a little bit more work. Um, so that's really what it is. <clears throat> yeah, I, it's it's been a while since I've used Reason, but I'm, I'm kind of a nerd, so I kind of poke in every once in a while for all that stuff. I would say that like we're at that point now where every DAW the stock plugins are pretty much you can you can do anything you need to do. Um, I really believe this to be true for Logic too, especially in when it comes to mixing. Like the Logic plugins, when it comes to the compressors and stuff, is the compressors and the DS, like all of the mixing plugins in Logic. I think for two hundred, it's it's a steal, two hundred bucks one time payment, and you have like pretty much everything you need. And but at the same time, so do these other ones. Like like a lot of these, there's some really cool plugins in FL Studio, like mixing plug because we're talking about mixing plugins in FL Studio. I know Reason uh, Ableton has some really good like uh, like they have like a multi band compressor that's really cool. Reason I'm not completely sure, but I do know that they were pretty focused on um, their mastering plugins a while back, and and I think those are really, if I remember right, those are really good. But as far as mixing, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a new world out there, guys. And I know that, like, you know, throwing a whole bunch of money at new plugins is not what we all have, of course. But if you need to start somewhere, <clears throat> I personally say Logic Pro because it's, it's going to be the DAW and the sounds that you need to start creating licensable music. Of course, you're going to want to expand as time goes on, get some different strings, you know, different things you can get uh, involved with. But for a starter pack for 200 bucks, 
I mean, there's really nothing better than that. Of course, you do have to have a Mac. I, don't, I mean, I'm sure there's hacked versions you can get for Windows, but I'm not going to point you guys in a direction to figure that out. But if you want to look into that, there's probably ways to figure that out. Um, but yeah, I, I would definitely think that Logic is is the one that I've I've you know it's been my career. It's been the it's the DAW that I've used my entire career, so I do recommend it. Uh, Zell's asking, does the Sync Academy have a mastering course from start to finish? We actually have multiple mastering tutorials. Um, Zell, I, we have the one for myself where it is basically a part of that producing, mixing, and mastering series where I walk you through how I created the track, and then I have a series of videos just dedicated to the mixing and mastering process. So definitely, you can check those out. But the way that the tutorials are structured in Sync Academy, it's not like we have a a mastering course it's broken up into different genres so if you're a hip-hop producer you're going to probably master and mix your tracks different than an orchestral producer right and different than a rock producer so we actually have all the mastering tutorials separated by genre so when you go look at the tutorials first look at the genre that's applicable for you click on that then you'll find all the producing mixing mastering transitions sound effects all those things that we have for each one of those uh, genres we want to make sure we organize it in a way that if you're just a hip-hop producer you don't need to go looking through, you know, all the different genres and all the other tutorials because that's not applicable for you. So that was the best way that we could organize all those tutorials so you could find what you needed as soon as possible um, and not make you, you know, go through hundreds and hundreds of videos before you found something that was actually useful for you. So definitely dive into those tutorials and I think you'll find what you're looking for. Um, this is from Marcus. Uh, is there a difference for libraries if you go with a production brand or yourself as a composer, basically personal name or brand name? Personally, my opinion, doesn't matter at all. What really matters is your music, is how licensable your, your music is. It doesn't matter if you're John Doe or John Doe Productions Inc Incorporated. It doesn't matter at all. Obviously, whatever brand you want to go with, go with the brand that you feel fits for you. I don't know if Mike or Trevor, if you have any other opinions on those. Uh, go ahead, Mike. Oh, yeah, I, I, I was just going to say that it kind of depends on the on the library. Um, there are some libraries, especially now, um, more and more libraries are starting to kind of brand themselves and look more like record labels as well. So um, whether that's like a big consideration for the composer, or who you know, for you, like when you're submitting, you know, it really just kind of uh, just kind of depends. But yeah, some libraries push their uh, composers or their artists out like as if they're a record label putting their artists out like front and center other libraries it's you know doesn't really matter so <clears throat> i uh <clears throat> actually have a, okay so this is something that i've been kind of changing my mind a little bit I, I agree with jesse that right now it doesn't really matter and it hasn't for a very long time um but in in this kind of like trying to separate like the signal from the noise or you know whatever analogy you want to use um you definitely stand out when you do that kind of stuff even like if there's a scenario where, you know, I'm getting bombarded with, you know, people DMing me on Instagram or emailing me or whatever, having something for my brain to visually remember, you know, is, is what a brand is. Right. And so if you have that, just in that sense of like perception and stuff like that, I think it would help. Um, focusing insanely on it is a bad idea. Like it's not something to like really be crazy focused on, but having that, I think that little extra, I think kind of, kind of pokes you through all of the a little bit of the noise just to make you a little more memorable and to also make it seem a little more seem, seem a little more professional seem like you got a little bit more going on like there's a lot of, it's mostly about perception and it really in in in, in the terms of as this industry gro grows and moves forward i think that and i know just looking at you know my company and how i want or how i need to be perceived amongst my other competitors those things might actually be tools as me as a company might be able to use later you know i might be able to you know use that as a marketing thing to kind of like 
poke like 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 poke through the, the noise of one of my sub publishers because I got a sub publisher who has a ton of libraries. How do I stand out through them? Well, I could do some. You can take some personal branding stuff and kind of go into that realm. So I think it is going to be useful and a little bit more useful than it used to be. But I also don't like like Jesse kind of said, it's not something to really focus too much on. But having a little bit is probably a good idea. Yeah, what you, what you, yeah. Oh, what, I want to make sure that it's clear that he's talking about having that brand, having that actual company name or behind you. That's what he's saying. Um, but again, yeah, and I, I agree that like it could help with the sort of initial like, oh wow, there's actually a, like a company or you know, there's a little bit more professionalism here. However, if you come to a library with crap music with a great sounding pr company name, you're not getting accepted. So just remember that this is not the focus this is just the it could be a like a we're wearing a tie basically to an interview same thing having your own website yeah. I, that's why i've told you guys to have your own website because it is the sort of thing that when you show up and you have this professional image it is a great first impression however if you go to a job interview you dressed great and they ask you about you know you know what's your experience and you're like well i don't i've never worked anywhere i don't know anything about anything okay you look great but the content is not going to be there for them to want to hire you and the same thing with your music if they if you look great you got a great sounding uh, company name and a great looking website and then your music is just demo form, kind of all over the place. It's very vague. It's too noisy, whatever it is, right? Um, you're not going to get in the door just because you had a suit and a tie on. So just make sure that like these are sort of dressings, right? These are kind of like sort of the, um, I don't know, the icing on the cherry on top of the cake. But you need yeah. to make sure that you have an actual cake. You need to actually have something of substance <laughs> there to deliver to them. So that's why I, I maybe that's why I should have clarified that, that like that's the focus. And whether yeah. or not, like as long as this stuff is, you got that, you got the goods and you're bringing that. You know, whether you use a company name or your personal name, it's not too important in terms of making sure that you actually have a licensable product for them. So, yeah, I think we're all on the same page on that one. Um, Scott's asking this. Uh, Thanks for the awesome tutorial, guys. All of us helped me tremendously. Um, how many different libraries do you guys work with at a time? Well, I can tell you, Scott, in my career at any given time, I usually was working with two, maybe three um, libraries at a time, usually just two. And even between those two, there was usually just one that I was primarily putting a lot of my effort and time into. However, I would maybe have five or six, you know, kind of... Um, extracurricular context that wouldn't be always asking me for music, but you know, once a quarter or once every six months, you know, maybe a music supervisor that I had a friendship with or somebody who had connections in the ad world would reach out for something. So I have contacts that kind of swirl around me, but they're not around me every single week. So in terms of that day-to-day, week-to-week thing, usually I would say two, possibly three would be the most that I would um, I would partner with. You guys have any other insights on that? 100% agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've always worked with, uh, usually the way I did it was uh, I worked primarily with one uh, custom music house uh, for ads and stuff like that. Had a second custom music house on the side that, um, you know, just for other things that, uh, you know, would come up and, you know, not really a primary one. Then I would work with uh, two libraries and much in the same way, one primary, one sort of uh, on the side. Then I always had, you know, tried to put space for, um, you know, because I run my own company now, so was always developing that catalog and stuff too. Um, and that was kind of like, you know, second tier as well, uh, you know, in the beginning. So, yep. As long as you're keeping the number small enough, you can get those personal relationships and you're not just like, you know, over committing yourself to too many companies. That's something to keep in mind for sure. Um, Z Man, what are some other common uses for orchestral music besides trailer music? Uh, Mike, you want to take that one? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's actually a lot of uses for orchestral music. Um, advertising um, is big. You know, it just depends on the brand and what uh, certain brands want, and especially um, you know car commercials. Um, you know, tend to use a lot of orchestral music, um, various forms of you know just straight up orchestral or or even hybrid uh, music as well. And then you have you know anything like 
underscore for um you know scenes in a tv show or film um you know game music uses uh or games use orchestral music as well um so there's really a lot it's just a matter of what you know just doing the research on the library and company that you're you know trying to work for awesome man and uh we got to do a big shout out edmund red is in the house edmund red is one of our sync academy pros edmund good to see you here man i hope you're still here uh, i know this What's comment up, was from a couple minutes ago but uh edmund is um yeah very very helpful here in sync academy and putting out these just world-class great um uh, tutorials so thanks for joining us edmund do i appreciate it um and let's move on with our next question here um josh mcadams uh, i'm finishing album with my band i'd like to get it into a library is my strategy different for this specific libraries i watched the video about this but i don't know where to start so yes i'll definitely start with a little bit of a general um, direction i can give you for that um if you're going to be going with your band and you have other plans for your music with your band meaning you want to tour you want to sell it you want to uh, stream it spotify um, you know, whatever you want to do with your band, maybe even also shop it to try to get a publishing deal with a publishing company. You need to be aware that if you get into sync licensing, especially with exclusive libraries, you're going to lose control of your publishing for the most part. Probably, you probably just guarantee that 100% of your publishing is going to be controlled by a music library. So first of all, is that okay with all of your bandmates? Because that's basically what you're going to be getting involved with, okay? So if you have other plans for that album in terms of you want to tour it, again, everything that I said before, maybe putting it into a sync licensing library might not be the first place you should go with, right? It might not be. It may or may not. Um, I know you said you watched that entire tutorial, but that tutorial basically walked you through uh, some of the considerations for why you can do a couple of different things. Like one thing you can do uh, to get around this is as a band, you put out music, like let's say this album, it sounds like it's going to be for your fans. And let's, let's put that in like sort of the public category. That's for your fans. That's where you're going to sell merchandise, touring, all that kind of stuff. Maybe as a band, you want to create other music that's not connected to this public music. It can be completely different. It can be the same style, but just a whole different album or collection or catalog of, of tracks that it's not for your fans, it's not for the public, it's not for anybody to publicly consume. So it's not going to be associated with your band publicly, but it could be something that you as a band all realize, you know what, we want to make money over here and succeed with our fans, and we want to also succeed with sync licensing. So maybe you can separate those out and create separate catalogs, and that way when you make this music for sync licensing, you're comfortable giving up that publishing because you're going to be asked to do that more than likely with any exclusive library that you partner with. So, And then, of course, you guys will be comfortable. You should be comfortable. Make sure you have your splits all correctly. So if you guys all contribute to the creative process, you should probably split everything just right down the middle, however many members there are, to make sure it's very, very um, you know fair. Split everything in terms of any sync fees, consideration fees, blanket fees, anything you guys earn, and royalties. Make sure you guys are splitting all that kind of stuff to make sure that's very fair. So in terms of specific libraries, there will be certain libraries that will be more interested in working with bands. Um, another thing you might want to look into is working with a sync agent because a sync agent will probably um, not be trying to take any of your publishing um, in terms of controlling it. They might want to take a, a percentage of it, usually like 25 to 50% if they secure a placement for you, but they're not going to require that you assign the publishing over to their company. So maybe you want to look into sync agents. I would definitely look into Mark uh, Freezer at Sync Summit. I think at SyncSummit.com. He's basically the guy to go to um, if you want to learn all about working with sync agents. So those are a couple of the different um, paths for you for you to uh, check that out. 
Um, George, you have a great question, and it's a it's, you call it a newbie question, but it's a great question. So don't no no dumb questions here, uh, George. But what exactly is a sync fee versus any other kind of payment from a library? So a sync fee is what you'll earn, George, when your track gets placed in a let's call it a TV show, a commercial, a trailer, a movie. Um, anything, a video game, anything where your track is being specifically selected to be placed into a particular uh, medium, whatever that might be, okay? So a consideration fee is what a library may pay you, they don't always, but they might pay you that when they first accept your tracks into their catalog, okay? So this is before, pre, any placements, okay? So you put together 12 tracks, they accept those 12 tracks for me. Maybe they want to pay you 100 bucks per track. So they give you $1,200 to say, thank you so much for allowing us to exclusively distribute and market your music to the industry, right? So that's a consideration fee. Now, once those 12 tracks are there, let's say a client comes and goes, hey, we've got this big Nike commercial and we think George's track is perfect for it. That's where the sync fee comes in, okay? So I hope that it makes sense. There are two different fees um, that you can earn uh, in this business. Uh, Brandon Martinez, I just had two non-exclusive libraries hit me up. One library wasn't getting back to me, so I moved on. Then suddenly they both emailed me. How should I approach this? Uh, Trevor, why don't you take this one? Uh, okay, so they're non-exclusive. Um, and I'm assuming the, you're, they're both hitting you up for the same music, right? Like, So you probably sent them 10 tracks, both of them 10 tracks. Um, if, if they both emailed you, I guess the, the one that took the... See, this one's where you, your discretion kind of has to like you kind of have to just pick one because what you're going to have to do is tell one of them, Hey, you know, probably the, the one that hit you up quicker, tell them that they could have the music and tell the one that took a long time to be like, look, you took too long. I already got that music somewhere else, but I can get you more of the, of stuff just like this, you know, and kind of approach it in like a, like, you know, the ones that hit you up first or whatever or quickest, you know, reward them in a way. And then the ones that took a little too long, I think they would understand depending on how much time, if it was like two months, three months, I think they'll be pretty understanding of like, okay, you didn't sit around for two months. We get it. That's, I mean, that in, in my opinion, I would hope that they would feel that way. And then you can go to them and be like, look, these tracks aren't available anymore, but I can make, make some new ones for you, you know, ASAP. So that'd be my, my recommendation. I dig it. Yeah. Mike, would, any um, other thoughts on I'll, that? Yeah. So if there are non-exclusive libraries, and if you want to work with both of them, um, I would first look at the kind of work that they both do. So if they're both um, doing a lot of like reality shows, TV shows, that kind of thing, I would say pick one because it's going to get really messy when it comes to uh, cue sheet time. Um, you know, having because what's going to end up happening is if you have uh, the same music in both libraries, uh, one of them is going to have to switch the titles um to re-register them and everything like that so that can get pretty messy uh come q sheet time for a tv show now if they both primarily do ads that's not as much of a deal so um you know if they both are primarily doing like advertising and commercials and stuff like that i would work with both of them uh if they're not exclusive so cool i dig it i think you got what you need there uh miguel's asking about uh, maybe tutorials that we could be adding for, excuse me, uh, mixing in surround. Um, it's actually not something I have a lot of um, uh, experience in personally. Uh, Mike or Trevor, do you guys have experience in that? Maybe we could throw some tutorials like that? Uh, not really when it comes to music specifically. Um, done surround mixing for, you know, the final. Um, and usually, you know, it's the final re-recording mixer and these kinds of things that, that deals with that. I mean, I guess you can, you know, there's composers out there that work in quad. Um, but like the, the LFE and the, um, and the, uh, center channel are, you know, as far as music goes, we're supposed to stay away from those channels anyway. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, for the most part, I think working in stereo is fine. Of course, I think, you know, uh, working in quad or having speakers behind you is like super epic and really inspiring, you know? So if you want to do it for fun, that's, you know, but I mean, I don't know, like uh, as far as tips on mixing in, in surround, you know, this is just, it's mostly just like not to overdo it because mostly uh, surround mixes are, you know, have to account for the entire, the entire program. Yeah. And we'll see what yeah, we bring. I don't... Go ahead, man. Uh, well, no, mine's quick. I was just going to say, like, I haven't seen hardly anything that has to do with like, like music in surround sound for libraries. Like I don't see it really being a demand or have, have been in the past in demand really at all. It seems like it's just kind of a, something mu- like people do for fun is, is mostly what it yep. seems like. <clears throat> yeah. It seems like it's more of the, uh, the actual sound editor for a film that'd be dealing with that. And they would be throwing the music into the, the surround mix, uh, wherever they felt, um, that would be it. So yeah, probably won't be something that we dive into too quickly, but you never know, you know, with VR content and other things coming on board, we might find a demand for it. And you guys better believe we will, uh, we will try to supply all that to you guys. If it's, um, if something that we think will be useful. Um, let's catch up here. Let's see. Uh, this is from Daniel Lobel. Hey everyone, I'm based in South Africa. Uh, welcome man. Is it worth me signing up with BMI to handle my USA territory? Or do you guys think tax wise, this may not be worth it for me? PS, so glad I found you guys. Um, my, my recommendations, if you are international and meaning that you are outside of the United States, um, if you plan on working mostly with U.S. libraries in the U.S. market, getting U.S. placements, I do recommend you sign up with BMI. And I, I recommend them over ASCAP. I do think that they are better for TV film placements in terms of royalties. And the reason being is mostly because of the registration problem, uh, issues that can happen when you are working with multiple PROs. I know I've had some members that, you know, we, we registered something here uh, through the library with the syndicate and it's not showing up on their local PRO, even though there's supposed to be this universal system where everybody's communicating but it just doesn't always happen and there can be always problems where you have to then go re-register tracks. So if that's happening just in the registration process, I would guess that probably a lot of missing royalties are also happening, right? Because you're having things that have to move and metadata and Excel sheets and spreadsheets moving between countries and you're just increasing the odds of things falling through the cracks. So I would recommend, Daniel, if you're planning on working with U.S. companies um, and, and, and working primarily in this market, just go to BMI because that's a U.S. PRO and everything's going to be more uh, streamlined for you that way. So that's would be, that would be my best um, take on that. I do have a tutorial called how foreigners can get involved in sync licensing, something like that. It's on my YouTube channel. I know I put it in Sync Academy. So if you haven't watched that too, uh, maybe take a watch at that because I think I I talk about some of that stuff more in detail there. Um, All right, we got a question for Trevor. This is from Aurora. Um, I'm currently making two tracks a week. I'm worried that I'm getting a bit lazy. So I wanted to ask, what is the ideal amount of tracks a week to get a contract? I make EDM. Uh, it's good to come. Um, <clears throat> it depends on your relationship with the library. Like, cause if I were expecting you to make a full album for me, which not some, that's actually not something I do too much. A lot of times I kind of Frankenstein albums together. And so if you're a producer who's, you know, doing two or three tracks every once in a while, like that, that works for me. Cause I can just, you know, throw them when they come in onto places. Uh, but other libraries, they like to get full albums. And if you are looking to get with a library that wants to get full albums going, that's pretty slow for them. So I would wait two a week. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would, it, it seemed most libraries that are pumping out a lot of music kind of expect a full album in a month. So if you can figure out a way to get to that ish, like, that's obviously like a, a roundabout, you know, extra week or whatever, but you know, about a full album in a month, about 10 tracks in a month or whatever, if you can figure out a way to get into that 
um, that amount, then I think you'd be um, in a good place because then, you know, for, for the libraries that expect full albums. Now, like I said, if you're in the circle with a library that's a little more Frankenstein-y like mine where I just throw stuff, um, <clears throat> then it's really, you know, your pace, as long as you're not like just disappearing for months and then come back with one track, um, that kind of workflow could work. And, and so you just, you know, you got to look at the library and see um, if that workflow can work for them. Or if you need to change your workflow. And that's, yeah, just so they know, you know, just so you know, you know, two a week is one track away from three a week. And three a week is 12 a month. And there you go. You got, for sure, you got a 10 track, if not a 12 track album. So you're very, very close to that. So you're not, you're further, you're closer to your goal than you are away from it. So just, you know, keep that in mind that you're actually on the right track. And that's a really good pace to start off. And I've always told you guys, two to three is about the minimum you should be shooting for if you want to work consistently in this business and treat it more serious, not just the sort of part-time once in a while you throw a track to a library. But if you want to really build this up into some some sizable income, yeah, it's got to be a focus of your life. And that means two to three at least uh, per week for sure. Um, Marcus has a good question for all of us. What versions or edits does a producer need to have ready for each track uh, in minimum? Well, Marcus, that is a question that you would have to ask every particular library. So there's no universal answer to like what alt mixes or what stems or what versions of a track does every library need because every library is completely different. I can tell you there are some common ones or more like the more commonly requested ones and those are going to be your standard cut down. So that would be a 60 second version which most of the time you're going to need most of your chorus or a big kind of maybe the end of your track where it's really, really high and intense. Um, and then you'll have usually a 30 second, maybe a 15, maybe a five, or they call it a sting. It could be a really quick one. So usually those are the common cut down lengths you need, but there could be ones that are like, we want a minute and a half cut down. We want 45 seconds, right? So you can't take this as your golden zone or your golden rules of like, okay, Jesse says this, so I'll just do this. Always talk to your libraries that you're working with, especially if you're just submitting to your tracks, your tracks to them for the first time, let them know, I am available and ready to deliver any alt mixes, cut down stems that you guys need. Let me know what format and formulas you need because they might need um, AIFs or waves, 44K or 48K, you know, 24 bit or 48, whatever they need, right? They might have all these different um, types of uh, needs for their alt mixes and everything they do. So just always ask them what they are. And with the alt mixes, some of the common ones are going to be either a, they call it a narrative or a no leads where you take all the leads out of your track. Another one that might be just drums and bass. So you take away everything else other than your drums, percussion, and bass. Um, you could have ones that would have, uh, if you had vocals on your track, you're going to take those out. So it's going to be instrumental only, or maybe you have uh, vocals only. So that would be your acapella version. So those are some of the common ones that you're going to find. Um, but again, always ask your library what they need. And if you don't know what they mean when they say narrative, ask them specifically, what exactly should I be cutting out of my narrative track? Should it be the leads? Should it be the guitars? Should it be this? And try to get as much clarification on that communication to make sure that you're giving them what they need. Okay. And we do have, um, tutorials in sync academy about how to create all those so make sure you do check those out um martin's saying we got a little bit of buffering sorry guys i know it goes up and down but it looks like it's okay i know it doesn't it's not always consistent here but um hopefully the audio is coming through the audio should be coming through no matter what um uh, let's see steve watson is asking i'm unable to get a mac at this time do any of you guys have an opinion about presonus um studio one um i don't have much of a direct opinion about that i know some members use it and they have good things to say do you guys have anything to say about that one 
I don't use uh, Studio One, so okay. Yeah, yeah nerd over nerd over here. I actually do have Studio One because I'm on this stupid journey to collect any and everything that has to do with software. Oh, you're no, actually, I have. That's the way I'm collecting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I uh, I have actually I have it because I bought I have this audio inter PreSonus audio interface that I use because it's like super small, but um. I, it's it's really good. Uh, I know people recently who have switched from Logic to it and really like it, and it's got a lot of cool features. Like it, like I said earlier in this chat, like all the major DAWs now, I think are just chock full of everything you need. Like there really isn't like a like uh, there isn't really a winner in the DAW war, war anymore. Like I, I used to be like ah reasons kind of B tier and it, everybody's A tier now, and and that's just where we are. So I, like all these DAWs are just really good, and and Studio One is one of them. So. Yeah, just groove with whatever works for you, you know, give it a shot. If you can get like a test, a demo, I know a lot of these give you sort of a demo, a trial to kind of try things out. Play with it for a couple of days and see if it works out for you. If you find it's pretty intuitive, then then go with it, you know. Um, there's really no DAW that's not worthy of using, I would say. I mean, the only ones that I would say you might, you know, GarageBand, something like that, it's just kind of limited. It's not going to be able to get you a lot of the features you might need to actually do proper mixing and mastering and all that kind of stuff. So you probably need to step up at least above that. But, you know, Fruity Loops, Logic, Pro Tools... Studio One, you know, Reason, everything, it all, it all can work, okay? So it just matters on how you use it and is it actually intuitive and useful for you. Um, and Michael's got a great uh, offer here. Any Reason questions, feel free to hit him up in Sync Academy. So this is Michael Johnson. Uh, I've owned it. He says he's owned it since the first version. Uh, he, moves, he moved to Studio One as a primary DAW, but he still uses Reason, okay? So if you guys have questions about Reason, hit up Michael Johnson. Thanks, Michael, for, for making yourself available, man. Hans, good morning, man. Glad you joined us. Uh, Hans says, a big library that's interested in working with me is asking only for a full version. No leads, no drum and bass, no stems, 30s, 60s, or stings. I was a little confused by that and would like your thoughts. So that's a perfect example, Hans, of what I just said in terms of every library is different. So that's a library for whatever reason is just saying, all we want is your main version. So just believe them. You can, of course, let them know that you are available and able to deliver alt mixes, cut downs, stems, anything they need. Offer it to them. So that if you guys need this, if it would make your life better and you have alternate versions of the track, I got, I'll give them to you. But if they're telling you, no, no, don't worry about it. Like we, we have a system and for whatever reason, we can get placements with your full version and that's how I want to keep it. Believe them, right? There's no reason why you should be doubting them just because I said other libraries do it a different way. Every library, again, will have their own unique way of doing it. So it's, it's totally not, you know, that's not something that I'd be concerned about. That would just be their way of doing things. Of course, you can always ask them if they want more than they're asking for, okay? Uh, another one from James. Uh, thank you much. Uh, thank you guys so much. It really helped me, and it was great to get your opinions. I can't wait to get involved in six, uh, 60 Day Challenge. Awesome, man. Well, I'm glad to uh, have you there as well. Um, let's see. Let's scroll down. All right, here we go. From uh, uh, M. Prado. Um, I created some good tracks just playing around with a popular YouTuber's free loops. Do I have to get his permission to use them as is? Uh, some I did not edit at all. Uh, you could be in some problems doing something like that because if you're just taking loops that are also readily available for any other producer to take, uh, that's what you're going to be opening. You're going to be opening yourself up to not that you did anything wrong, especially if they say you can use these loops however you want commercially, make money off of them. But the problem is some other producer might blow up using that same loop, especially since you're saying you didn't edit them at all. What if they don't edit them? They get big, they get popular, 
and then um, they go to everybody else that used that same loop and try to sue them. That's what actually happened with, uh, with Mike here, with his company. That's what's happened with uh, the Justin Bieber situation. I don't know if you guys caught that on my YouTube channel a couple months ago. So I would say stay away from, no matter where you get loops, even if they're completely available for you to use them, stay away from just using them without editing them. You know, using a complete four, eight, or 16 bar chunk of music and putting it into your track. You're just asking for trouble. You really are asking for trouble. So I would stay away from that kind of stuff and just create original melodies, original chord progressions. Um, Chase has a question for Mike. Mike, how did Netflix pay out royalties if they dealt with blankets? How did the composer earn any back-end royalties off streaming, or maybe they didn't? Um, how did they get any upfront fees with blankets? Uh, so, first off, I didn't work in billing uh, at Netflix, so I can't tell you exactly, but I do have an idea as to how blanket deals actually um, uh, work in general. So, blankets are usually um, done you know, via subscription, whether it be a monthly subscription or a yearly subscription, uh, basic or just, you know, hiring a company on retainer. Um, uh, and there, you know, it's, it's a sum of money that's paid whatever the period of time is, uh, to get access to whether it be a portion of the library or all of the library, um, for whatever their uses are that they negotiate. Now, as far as how that, uh, money translates to, um, the composer that's dependent on, um, how the libraries, what, deal structure is with the composer so a lot of times like um, libraries can see what songs are downloaded you know uh can also see what's used uh stuff like that um they'll take those kind of stats into consideration and um you know and probably you know how they would each library is different um do their whatever however whatever algorithm that they use to kind of divvy up the you know stuff either per track or whatever it is uh, for their composers so royalties for streaming it's not exactly regulated so um, so you know there's not really any surefire like you know um, just because like something gets played on a on a you know streaming channel or let's say you know you get one of those rollover uh, trailers on Netflix that you're getting there's any like royalties supposed to be uh, paid out on that uh, Netflix might pay um, another royalty scheme uh, for that like along with the blanket deals they have with the libraries but I'm sure that that's uh, uh, individually negotiated with each library. Very cool. This is a funny question. Uh, Pinda asked, any tips on how to create a bad website to get job rejections? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I would say make your website look as much as a MySpace page as you possibly can. <laughs> have conflicting colors, make it hard to read, have music just playing all over the place, have multiple tracks playing on top of each other. Um, you know, and, and also list your entire life's biography about everything you've done since you uh, first started walking to what you ate for lunch last Wednesday. Like just, just bore them with as much details as you possibly can. Um, and also make sure all of your tracks are behind uh, privacy uh, walls. So make sure you have a password for every single track. And so they have to click on those and enter the password to be able to listen to your music. Um, and don't put your any contact information on your website. No, no email, no uh, phone number or anything like that. Um, have a really bad uh, selfie photo of yourself or just you know, a picture of you wearing a Halloween costume or something unprofessional like that. Lots of great stuff you can do to get rejected if you'd like to. So just take that as a starting point. You can jump much further into that. I, I don't know. You could uh, make a landing page that just says, um, what, Arrow 404? Um, yeah. <laughs> Save yourself you all the effort music, I just put you through. You, you can put all your music behind, like, a really ridiculous paywall. And, see, you know, I mean, all you need to do is get one person, I guess. And then you... <laughs> Perfect well, wait, question. I love those questions, Isn't that guys. starting a music library at that point? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, you become your own music library at that point. Without any clients, though, but you're a library. <laughs> 
Yeah. All right. So, cause uh, if a library says that your tracks aren't right for their library, but they don't go into details as to why, would it be okay to ask them for feedback about tracks they rejected? Thanks. Um, I'm gonna let you guys answer this because I'm sure you guys get submissions all the time and you reject a lot of them a lot of the time. Um, what is your take on that? Um, and not just your take, but like from the cons composer's perspective about what they should realistically expect from a library owner after trying to submit to them and not getting accepted. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Trevor. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Um, I, it's, it's hard because, like, I don't, as, like, a library owner, like, I only have so much time. And, you know, if I'm going through submissions and stuff to then also, like, write out all the reasons why it's it's a little bit, like, I just don't have the time to do it. Um, and so I wouldn't expect it. I don't think asking would really be a horrible thing. Just if they never email you back, don't like, don't get upset because they probably just don't have the time, you know? And, and I've, I've had that situation where sometimes I'll be sitting and I'm like, you know what? I have some time. I'm going to answer that. But then other times I'm like, man, I got so many things to do. I just, I can't explain to this guy, you know, why or why not? Uh, I didn't take the tracks. And so I would just say like, there's no hurt in asking don't hound him like don't ask four times or whatever and also don't expect a response like don't get your don't get upset if, if you don't get a response um because you, you might not it's just it's it's a lot of work to try and like go through and explain every single time somebody gets rejected why they got rejected um yeah for me yeah, for me, um, well, for my company, first off, we don't take uh, open submissions. So, you know, we're not really getting, so, you know, the music that we get, we're specifically asking for in the first place. Um, and so that tends to come with feedback anyway, uh, because we're already working with that particular person. Um, <clears throat> but in general, from what I found, um, you know, I think that it kind of depends on what your community, you can kind of gauge that from what your communication is like, you know, so when you submit, if um, the library is pretty, you know, cool with you, like, you know, by getting back to you in a timely fashion, and then also getting back to you about like what the response is, like in pretty much a timely way, you might be able to get a sense of like, you know, being able to like, hey, you know what, there, there's a little door there that you can open up to, to be like, okay, um, you know, nicely ask them, um, you know, is there anything maybe I could do better or what is it that you're seeing or, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, there would be a chance uh, that they could give you feedback. But again, yes, yeah, same, same as what Trevor, Trevor said, um, there's, a, you know, a lot of these companies just don't really have time. And a lot of times, too, you know, the person that's making the decision would be like maybe a, a creative director and stuff like that. And the person that's getting back to you with these emails is either their assistant or a producer or something like that too. So it's not necessarily, you know, their opinion wouldn't really matter anyway, you know, and if they got to go to the creative, you know, creative director is probably too busy um, to, you know, if they didn't give you feedback already, um, they're probably not going to. Yeah. So definitely you can ask for it, but don't expect anything. I think that's pretty much where we all agree on that. Um, Gregory is asking, how strict does one have to be within sticking to one genre? I should someone make an entire album of rock and sports songs or can a rock producer make an album with pop rock, sports rock, indie rock, etc.? When it comes to an album, Gregory, great question, by the way. When it comes to putting together an album, you need to stay within one of those. So if it's going to be pop rock, it needs to be a pop rock album. 10 tracks, 12 tracks, I believe just stay with pop rock. You shouldn't have two tracks that are pop rock, two that are sports, two that are indie. 
unless that's requested, unless the library tells you we want sort of a variety album, give us these different types of rock, then go for it. But if you're just submitting to a library for the first time, you really want to do that research, make sure that, the, yeah, they have a lot of need for indie rock with all these placements and these clients are working with. Indie rock is right up my alley. I think I make some great stuff. You should have an entire album with many different, you know, versions of indie rock. You can obviously look how many bands and how many songs are out there with indie rock. It's a huge sound palette that you can go with, even though you're sticking within one um, one subgenre. Now, as you get, let's say, that indie rock album done, the, album, the library says, hey, that was really cool. We also need a little bit of, uh, you know, pop rock. Uh, can you do something like that? Then you would switch gears and move into the pop rock realm, get new references, maybe get some new drums, guitar sounds, that kind of thing that fit a little bit more into the authentic pop rock sort of vibe or whatever that means. Pop rock can be anything from like EDM dance to straight up like a rock band. So it's kind of all over the place. So you got to be really... Um, uh, clear on what they mean by pop rock. So, but yeah, it's a really good question. I would say you kind of stick to that one subgenre, even within a big genre uh, per album. So hopefully that helps you. And we got a couple more minutes here, guys. So I'll get to as many questions as we can. I'm sorry if we can't get to all of your questions, but um, seems like this is working out pretty good. And if Trevor and Mike want to do this, maybe we can make this kind of a regular thing. Um, I don't know if it'll be weekly, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it works here. But I, I like this kind of sort of live interactive thing. It's kind of working for me. Um, <clears throat> Christopher Curry, quick question. It might be in the FAQs. If you already have music released for on Spotify or SoundCloud, can that music be submitted to a library? Yes, it can. Just be aware that you need to let a library know that. So if it, especially if it's an exclusive library, which is most libraries you're going to be submitting to, just let them know this music is already on Spotify. It's already on SoundCloud. First of all, is that a problem? Would you require me to take that down if you were to shop these tracks and actually start using these tracks with your clients? So just ask the library. Again, just like the alt mixes and stems, every library is going to have a different policy with that. Some of them are going to be cool with it. They don't mind. Others will say, no, everything needs to be 100% behind our you know, private catalog. We don't want it to be publicly available for anybody. And then at that point, you have to decide, all right, do I want to take my music off of Spotify and SoundCloud and work with this library? Or maybe what you want to do is leave that music there, create new tracks, and put it into that new library's catalog so that you don't have to worry about it being anywhere else publicly. So you got to make that call. Good question, though. Um, Dave, uh, uh, McWilliam, are there any plugins that have become a, a cliche to avoid? Um, some suggested the other day that you reckon native instruments damage might come under this category. I welcome your thoughts. Yeah, there are definitely some plugins and there are definitely some, especially loops. I don't know about sounds, but definitely like loops. Um, especially when it comes to like the damage stuff or the evolve series, those kind of things where you have these kind of pre-built in cinematic orchestral, um, you know, uh, percussive beds or tension beds. And if you're just going to the preset, clicking a button, absolutely. That's going to be cliche. A lot of people are going to be using that. And it's not so much that you couldn't get a placement or you couldn't get accepted, but you're not going to be really carving out your own niche in this industry. You're going to be basically using sort of a pre-made sound from somebody else, essentially. So I would say no matter what you're using, if you can kind of stay as far away from pre-made loops as possible, that will steer you in a place where you're not creating just cliche stuff. So if you can create and compose your own drums and your own drum progressions, even if it's going to be intricate orchestral stuff, Try to do that. Try to get some sounds to do it 100% on your own and not just go to the the loops that are easier. They are obviously easier to do. They just click one button and have that done. But you just you do run that risk of definitely sounding like a lot of other producers. And of course, running the risk of lawsuits, potentially, if somebody else says that they use that same loop and their, their track got popular and they're saying that you stole their loop even though you didn't. It's not that you did anything wrong, but that you still can have these kind of legal problems. So I think just staying away from that stuff um, is definitely one way to go. 
Um, bah, 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 bah. Let's see. Keep going down. And it just skipped big time. Sorry, guys. Got to catch up here. Do you guys have any thoughts on that before I go to the next one? Um, yeah, I mean, one thing to, to think about, too, yeah, with the loops, um, <clears throat> you know, you also have to consider that, like, when a new library comes out with, like, really cool loops like that, guaranteed, um, you know, composers that are especially working regularly for a library, um, guaranteed, like, the, all those loops are going to be used within the first week of it of release, you know? So um, it's just, just like anything with, um, you know, the trends that I was talking about before. Um, when there's a demand or something cool that kind of happens, there's enough of us that's making music, enough libraries out there that's gra uh, grabbing music that, you know, a lot of these, a lot of that supply can just be filled up, um, you know, pretty much in a week. I will also say too, that there is one particular plugin that I have run into, um, a few years ago actually was, um, outputs, uh, exhale. And, um, if you don't know what that is, it had a lot of like vocal type of, um, vocalization kind of, uh, samples and loops and stuff like that. Um, that was, especially when uh, future base was like really big in advertising that was used incredibly like on every, I mean, I use it on every commercial that I, I, I made and uh, all the way to the point where the music house I was working for like told me to stop using it. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that's one in particular. I would just say like you can use anything, just doctor it. You know, just don't really use anything straight up. Um, just be creative with it and you know use it as part of you know your own sound palette. Absolutely. And I'm going to skip ahead here, guys. We're going to do two more questions here. And I wanted to skip to somebody who hadn't asked a question yet. I want to keep you know answering the same members' questions over and over again. So, Brett, I don't think you asked one yet, so I'm going to go to yours. Um, what's a solid amount of tracks to have in your catalog before you start reaching out to libraries for the first time? Uh, Trevor, you want to take that one? Um, I would assume you mean like the tracks that you're going to send to, Correct. to a library to pitch. Yeah, I mean, 10 to 12. Like, it, it, I think we've talked about this a bunch, actually, is... You know, coming with like a like I can make you an album is kind of the like the the high point, and then the library can kind of pull back from that if they need to. Like if they're like, well, we don't really do full albums like that. We just need you to do a few things here and there. You know, they at least know your ceiling, which would be a full album if they really need it from you. And uh, yeah, and, and you know, ten to twelve. You know, if they need if they if they do albums of twelve, which I've had before, where I'll work with the library and I send them 10 and they're like, well, we do albums at 12, like quickly throw two more tracks together. No problem. So the, in my opinion, the rule of thumb is just, you know, 10 just shows them that you're not just some dude that, you know, grabs one of your tracks off your hard drives and throws them at them and hopes it sticks. You're, you know, dedicated to making a full thing. And, uh, it just, it looks good, um, from their perspective and it looks good on you and your work ethic, work ethic. It just all around just kind of seems like the, the good idea. Absolutely. And I've said that for, for a long time now, 10 to 12, that's what you need to have just one album. You know, it sounds like a lot, but it's really not that much. And you can actually get that done. In fact, for our next Sing 60 challenge starting on Monday, maybe that'll be what you want to get done in the next two months. And then at the end of that, you can start to pitch to the libraries that you think are going to be um, good partners for you. Um, and here's the last one for today, guys. Uh, John Esler. Uh, as yeah, Esler, uh, I signed about 10 songs in perpetuity to a library that is no longer in existence. Yikes. Uh, can I consider those tracks mine again? They don't respond to any of my emails. That's a tricky one. Um, I actually want to get both of your guys' um, take on that. Mike, do you want to start with that one? What, what, what advice would you give John here? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, do your research into trying, trying to figure out what happened to that library. A lot of times when libraries go out of business, um, 
a lot of you know just they just start liquidating all their assets which is your music you know so your music might have been bought by another library you know so tr try to find that out especially if they're not answering emails if they're you know you, you can't contact anyone there I mean, that's a that's kind of a tough one um i would say that it's not safe to just automatically assume that you can take everything back because remember they're already registered uh, and everything so at very least you would have to go through retitling and re-registering and all that kind of stuff too but if, if you do all of that put it back out you're going to run into a problem if they did actually sell that to another library so do the best that you can as far as trying to research what happened to that library yeah. So on the liquidation part, Mike is 100% right. There's a very good chance that those are owned by somebody else now, and you just have no idea. I've even seen people liquidate. I actually, you know, I actually might know what library you're talking about now that I think about it, because I know a library that had a ton of music that doesn't exist anymore. And uh, anyway, so that, but I know that that library, um, they they liquidated everything. And not only did they liquidate everything, they actually re changed all of the titles for everything. And they're in a new system now, but those tracks are still owned by this new company. And so that would be, that's something that you're going to have to try somehow try and figure out who now owns those tracks, because it may even be a better scenario for you because maybe that library wasn't doing too well, but this new owner will, you know? And so I would try and do some research, whether it's Googling that company, you know, if they're not being emailed, uh, I mean, like one of the things I would do is maybe throw some of those in a TuneSat account and see if they're getting placements. And if they are, then try and reverse track down who's placing them. Like there's just, I would try and find out who owns them. Cause I would be very surprised if they like are just gone. Um, like, yeah. Cause at the very least, if your company goes under the last, the, the first thing you're going to do is sell all this stuff. And so it's probably somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely also, yeah, um, more than likely they didn't just let that stuff just go away and they lost all yeah. the value that they had built up with their company. Uh, that is their asset, their their uh, catalog. That's basically their biggest asset. So it's very unlikely that they would just throw that away and have it be doing nothing. So other things you can do, of course, if they're not you know responding to your emails, do some social media hunting. You know, find out who are the people that were working there. I'm sure you have their names or you can get a hold of their names. Go on LinkedIn, see if you can find them there. Go on Facebook, try yeah, to find LinkedIn them, send them private messages and just say, hey, you know, I worked with you a long time ago. I had these 10 tracks. I, I don't know what happened to the company. Maybe you can let me know. Um, you know, if they're in another home, I, I'm more than happy to we just let them be there and hopefully things go great. But if they're just sitting nowhere collecting dust, like, can we get some paperwork going? Because I signed an agreement that you were going to be distributing my tracks. And right now it doesn't look like you're doing that. So I just want to make sure that something's being done with my music, right? Let me get to the bottom of it. So definitely do a little bit of in investigating yourself. And I bet you, you'll be able to find these people through LinkedIn, through Facebook, and I'm sure they'll be able to get back to you and give you some sort of an explanation as to what happened with your tracks. And just like Trevor and Mike said, they probably are in the hands of somebody else at this point. And so, you know, worst case scenario, if they are in a library that's just, you know, you're not happy with, or they're not really doing much with your music, or worst, worst case scenario, they really are just sitting on a hard drive somewhere and nobody bought them and they're just collecting dust. Um, you might have to just eat that. That might just have to be something that you're like, yeah, the, those 10 tracks, just I don't get to earn any money off them anymore. They're over. And I have to just kind of grieve that and be bummed out about that and just move on. I don't think that's likely the scenario, but that's a possibility. So, and that's a risk, right? This is welcome to sync licensing, welcome to planet Earth. There are risks associated with this industry. So even though you got a recommended library, maybe even from Sync Edge, right? And you're coming from somebody that's been doing this 12 years, 
Do I have any guarantees that every library will guaranteed stay in business for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Of course, I cannot guarantee that. And I can't even guarantee, even if they do stay in business for 50 years, that your tracks are the ones that are gonna go out there and get placed. So if you're not comfortable taking a little bit of risk into your life, this might not be the industry for you. And I know you guys all, obviously you're here in this chat, you're an hour into this chat. So you guys are obviously, you have that mindset, you have that kind of patience and that kind of persistence to move forward and to accept that there's going to be risks. That's why the strategies that I share with you guys and that Mike and Trevor uh, share with you guys is about minimizing that risk as much as humanly possible. But there is no such thing as zero risk. That does not exist. There is no such thing in anything on earth where you have zero risk of loss or of wasting your time or of partnering with the wrong company. There's zero there's never a chance where there's zero risk of that happening there's always a risk of bad things happening because we are we are human beings on planet earth okay so we just have to kind of accept that and move forward with it but there are certainly a lot of things you can do to empower yourself to increase your chances to ensure that everything you can control most likely and, and really more what it is is just how how high quality your music is and what kind of a relationship do you have with the libraries that you work with those are really the two things you can actually control so if you really focus on those things and not so much on things that are really out of your control you'll actually find that you find yourself more lucky like things just start happening to you more opportunities start coming your way you know more income starts pouring in more royal more sync fees, more consideration fees, you'll find actually the more that you can just focus on the things that you can control, it will actually open up the things you can't control to you. And it really is this weird thing. Call it the law of attraction, call it whatever you want to call it, confirmation bias. I don't know what it is, but it's certainly very true in my life and in almost everybody else that I've known that's done well in this business is when they you know, think and worry too much about this risks and the things that are scary and the bummers and all that kind of stuff, they usually just don't make it because they're spending so much time focusing and getting a magnifying glass out and looking at the negatives as opposed to focusing on the positives and focusing on what they really can do with their, their careers and with their lives. So Trevor, Mike, thank you guys so much for being here. I appreciate your time today. And I know everybody in the chat certainly appreciates you, everybody in Sync Academy. And so, yeah, this is kind of a cool new format. We'll experiment with this a little bit and see what we do moving forward. I'll talk to Trevor and, um, and Mike. We'll see what you guys want to do about this moving forward. And uh, thank you guys so much for your great questions. Sorry we didn't get to all of them. Uh, we do have other things we need to get onto with our, our days today, though. But uh, hang on to them and def definitely post them. And if you guys don't know, anytime you have a question, if it's not covered in the frequently asked questions section within Sync Academy or in the tutorials, that's what the platform is there for, for you guys to post your questions about sync licensing or the industry or anything in general. And so myself, Trevor and Mike and other members can actually answer. And sometimes I'm not the one that's gonna give you the best answer. And in fact, many times other people are gonna give you, other fellow members are gonna give you some better insights as to their experience in this industry. So we all get to see that though when you put it out there publicly. In fact, please do that. Do not email me your question privately one-on-one -on -one because then only you and I get to benefit from that. I want everybody in Sync Academy to be able to benefit from the answers and the questions that are given there. So please don't be shy, guys. Make sure you do post it. And thank you, Trevor and Mike. Appreciate you guys' time. And we'll see you guys um, maybe next week. Maybe we'll do this again. We'll see. But for sure, this is going to get released as a podcast uh, this next coming uh, Friday. So you guys will be able to re-watch, re-listen to this as, as much as you need to. And I appreciate all you guys being here today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Sync My Music podcast. If you enjoyed the show and want me to do more episodes, all that I ask is that you leave me a review on whatever platform or app that you're listening to. It just takes a few seconds. I'll never...